Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In 2018, Johanna Hayes ran for Congress and won. Now the former National Teacher of the Year is up for re-election in Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. Today where we live, Congresswoman Hayes joins us to answer our questions and yours. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Maybe you're listening to our live stream on your phone because you are without power. Uh, We're happy that you are listening this hour. Again, uh, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes is joining us today via Zoom. Congresswoman Hayes, thanks so much for, for coming on the show today. Good morning, Lucy. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I mentioned uh, you're up for re-election. We should mention that uh, in November you will be up uh, against Fifth District in the Fifth District against Republican David X. Sullivan. Uh, but now that you're back home, what has it been like uh, the past uh, couple of days with these widespread power outages impacting your constituents, Congresswoman Hayes? Actually, it's not just the last couple days or weeks, this entire term. I don't Mm. think that I could have imagined everything that I would deal with. And now to couple a global pandemic and the racial unrest that we've seen and the challenges with the economic crisis, excuse me, to now add a, a tropical storm that has devastated my state has really, I guess, battle tested me, has really put me in touch with people and out in this district to hear the things that they are concerned about and just helps me to truly appreciate the magnitude of the job that I have and the position that I've been entrusted with. And we'll be talking about all of what you mentioned uh, throughout the hour. But when we look at this latest uh, difficulty that many Connecticut residents are facing, including in your district, these widespread power outages, what does it look like in your district? What are you hearing? Oh, my goodness. I was out yesterday and Litchfield County has been devastated. 24 hours after the storm, there were still roads that were blocked, trees down where there was just yellow tape. Uh, no trucks out. People were without power. Many people in this district who have wells are without water. I heard from so many of my constituents, elderly people, you know, single mothers who said they had just gotten their benefits at the beginning of the month and gone, done all their groceries because they really try to make less trips to the store. And here we were 48 hours later and they saw all of their food spoiling. So people were just at the breaking point with, I don't know how much more I can take of this. And it was devastating for me because in spite of, we did, we called, reached out to the leaders of all of the towns. We reached out to Eversource. We're trying to get answers so that I could communicate it back to my constituents. And there are so few answers. Um, and I just think that On top of everything else that has been happening, people are just exhausted. 
What have you been hearing from Eversource? A lot of frustration, this coming on the heels of this rate hike that has been suspended for August, but uh, many uh, people still having to pay for this rate increase in July, and now they're without power. They have no idea when it'll come back, Congresswoman. Right. I came into my office last week to voicemails from people asking about the rate hike and the hike in delivery services. So we had already been in touch with Eversource on that front last week. And now yesterday, I don't think that anyone calculated the magnitude of the storm or the the resources that we would need on the ground or the number of people who would be without power. I mean, we didn't get heavy rains. Um, The storm moved fairly quickly, but the winds and the devastation left by winds, we were told that they are dispatching um, technicians from other states to come into Connecticut to help, that it would be a multi-day restoration, that they were having trouble with the reporting lines. Um, I joined the rest of the delegation in, in asking for federal resources to assist the state in this effort. But I, I was, I don't want to use the word discouraged, but they didn't have a lot of answers yesterday. They were still kind of gathering, mapping out where the outages were and putting together a plan. So we will be back in touch with them today because I really would like to be able to get some information out to my constituents. And I myself don't have power or water in my home. So I am, I, I mean, this, this could not have come at a worse time when we're telling people to wash your hands and to make sure that you are, um, following all of these precautions. And now we have so many people who don't have water. It's a real nightmare. And when you think about how uh, Eversource, they've gotten rate increases over the last several years, especially after uh, the 2012 uh, Superstorm Sandy, they're supposed to be hardening their infrastructure and thinking about having sufficient uh, crews to deal with something like this. And that certainly doesn't appear to be the case, Congresswoman Hayes. Right. And that's what I heard from a lot of people. If we saw the storm coming up the East Coast, why didn't we have people on the ground or why weren't crews in place? And again, I just don't think that anyone calculated or or maybe everyone miscalculated the devastation that this storm would bring, because I can tell you I was not expecting this. They said we would have a storm. There may be some power outages. Um I never would have imagined that we'd be in a situation with over 700,000 people in the state without power. And then we heard yesterday from many of our medically fragile uh, constituents who were saying, you know, it's critical, you know, it could be a life and death situation that they don't have power in their house. Is there a way for them to get to the front of the line? They're already on record with Eversource as having this medical condition or whatever. And there really was no way to answer that question. You know, the best we told them, is there a way to relocate? Is there somewhere else you can go right now? But um, again, I, <laughs> we're going to be back on the phone with them this afternoon. I, my DC team is working with the rest of the delegation to stay connected and stay in contact. And I'm asking my constituents as their power is restored to kind of reach out and let us know so we can have an idea of what areas of the state are still impacted. But it it definitely is something that we could have never imagined. 
You're hearing Congresswoman Johanna Hayes on Where We Live today. If you have a question for her, especially if you live in the 5th District, the number 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Congresswoman Hayes, we were really looking forward to speaking with you today because of your experience as a longtime educator. We're in this moment where teachers and school staff and parents and administrators and leaders are all trying to figure out how do we return children to school safely. As someone, uh, again, who has taught uh, for many years, uh, what is going through your mind as these conversations continue? This is, I can tell you, for everything that you just heard me talk about the challenges of this term, the idea of schools opening safely was probably the most personal for me because as a teacher, your, your first job, you want to keep kids safe. Kids trust you. You build those relationships. And there's something sacred about the space that you share with children. I worried about this as far back as March when schools first closed. After we did the first coronavirus relief package, the CARES Act, on every caucus call, on every call, I requested meetings with the speaker, with the leader. My number one issue to the point where every time I opened my mouth, everyone knew what I was going to say was, how are we planning to reopen schools safely? I've been saying this since April. You know, everyone was talking about the distance learning was not working. In no other segment of our economy do you pilot something for four months, then abandon it. I said, if we, we need to review all available options, you know, maybe start giving teachers professional development, maybe start making sure that children have internet access and we start to close this digital divide, that our teachers are properly prepared in case we have to go back to virtual learning. So it was no surprise for me in July when everybody was scrambling to put a plan together. I said, we knew this was going to happen. I was immediately skeptical when I saw the initial plans at the state level because I've worked in a school and I know that many of the things that were being called for, like social distancing, like air quality and ventilation and personal protective equipment, wearing masks, I knew that those things would not be tenable, that I worked in a school with almost 1,200 students, and I just imagined every possible scenario. And more importantly, I knew that none of these things could happen without significant federal resources. And I was vocal about that from the very beginning because I just could not see where we we could do this safely. I know everyone wants schools to reopen. I know everyone talks about the value in relationships and and children having the social interaction, but even if they were to return in September, it would be different. The relationships that we're talking about, the interactions that we hold dear, they would not be happening in the same way. And we don't know enough about how this virus moves. Just in the last week, we saw where they opened up schools in Mississippi and Within a week, 116 students were are in quarantine. In Georgia, a day after school opened, 260 people were either affected, I mean, were had in some way had contact and they were quarantined. We had a second grader who tested positive. When this virus first hit our country, we immediately took kids out of school. So we really don't know how it interacts with students. And as a mother, I can't say that I'm comfortable sending my own child back. So if I can't, if I don't want that for my child, then I really have to 
think long and hard about recommending it for someone else's child. And at, when I talk to superintendents and teachers around this state, there's, there's just so little confidence in the ability to do it safely. I mean, nothing else in our economy is opening 100% capacity with everybody in one space for hours at a time. So to start with our children, I think is ill-advised. Mm. Uh, you were uh, definitely public back in June, uh, tweeting to Governor Lamont about uh, the state's plan to wanting to see schools uh, reopen fully. Uh, you wrote, am I missing something? Uh, since then, Governor Lamont and Education Commissioner Dr. Miguel Cardona telling school districts, we want to see you fully reopen, but it's up to you. And if it's a hybrid plan that becomes the best for your local community, then that's fine. Uh, or what if it ends up having to be fully online? Uh, I think Governor Lamont said that he would push back on that. But again, it is the decision of local districts. So how would you rate how Governor Lamont and the Department of Ed and others have, have really approached this issue, considering all the things you just raised, Congresswoman Hayes? Well, I think, like I said before, my initial response was because this struck a nerve for me. I was, it was so incredibly painful to think that anyone would, would start with, we're going to reopen schools uh, at 100% full time, because I recognize what so many students, parents, teachers, administrators would have to deal with. You know, I thought about the superintendents who would have to stand in front of teachers and say, I can't assure that you're, you're safe, you're going to be safe. Not that we can assure anything, but even that the proper measures were going to be put in place. I continue to ask, I ask then, I ask now, what happens if a faculty member says, I think I've been exposed, I'd like to be tested? Mm -hmm. Is there a protocol for, I know we don't have universal testing, but it, will testing be provided? Or if a student wants to be tested? And the answer that I continued to get was they would have, there's community-based testing, they would find it on their own, and I'm thinking, well, what if someone has to quarantine? I'm thinking of all of the possible scenarios. So when I said that, it was because I was shocked. I have since then been in contact with the governor and with Commissioner Cardona, you know, listening to what they have to say and listening to their plans and telling them some of the concerns that I have and posing many of the questions that teachers are posing. However, we, I still don't believe that we are prepared to do this safely. And I think the thing that is even more concerning for me, this idea that it's up to local districts to decide, I think that further perpetuates the equity gaps that I, I've seen in this district my whole career, in this state my whole life, where some districts, just like when children left school, some districts were online and virtual learning within three days, some, day, some districts three months later still had not connected. So the poorest, most marginalized districts will, the ones, the districts that are already the hardest hit by COVID, you know, our large cities, our uh, minority communities, they will be further impacted because they won't have the resources to put all of these precautions in place, to purchase the plexiglass, to make sure everyone has a device, to do a hybrid model and the idea that local districts, it's up to every district to figure it out, that's a map and a recipe for disaster because for some districts, they were already, you know, behind the eight ball. They already lacked the resources. So now couple that with all of the added expenses of COVID, 
buying personal protective equipment, um, cleaning and sanitizing schools. I've worked in buildings where every available space, closets were used as tutoring rooms, where social workers were meeting kids in the back corner of the library. I really just could not imagine how that could be done safely. And I think that in my conversations with the governor, I recognize that he's in a very difficult position. And there's this idea that kids need to get back in school. They need to be back together. They need to see their teachers because of the social aspects. But my question to that is always, if we are so deeply concerned about, you know, depression and kids not, um, abuse not going unnoticed or kids not having access to all of those resources, then why doesn't part of any of these plans include investing in trauma-informed services, having more social workers, more guidance counselors, uh, more therapists on the ground in the schools to receive these kids when they come back with probably the most traumatic experience of their lives coming back into a school where they're not sure if they're safe and they have vulnerable family members at home. You know, we can't have it both ways. If we're rushing kids back because we're concerned about their safety, their security, um, all of these social issues, then we need to put the safety nets in place for when they return to receive them. This, these are, this is just, this is just such a complicated issue. And the people who are going to be left to deal with it are the classroom teachers. And that just is not fair. Mm. Uh, what, what do you say when you hear again, uh, Governor Lamont brought on the CDC's uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci to talk yeah. about the fact that compared to other states, Connecticut's infection rate is low now. Uh, he went on to say at that press conference, there's very little chance of having inf- infection spread so that schools in Connecticut should feel okay about reopening, but they have to do the necessary things to prevent spread. So from the, from the role of Congress, how much more money uh, do these school districts need to have those measures in place, Congresswoman Hayes? Well, I was excited to hear Dr. Fauci. I think uh, my, one of the concerns that I have is even with the CDC guidance, we've seen the guidance just change and fluctuate so much where um, I think it, it really, for many teachers, it didn't instill confidence. Congress has asked in the HEROES Act, we asked for $58 million for K-12 education, but then an additional, I think it was $130 uh, billion for, I'm sorry, $58 billion and $130 for school infrastructure in the Moving Forward Act, because there's so many things that need to be addressed. I, I guess... You know, as to Dr. Fauci's point and to the governor's point, we all want kids to go back to school. I cannot stress that enough. But there is a concern with, I don't understand how it's okay for schools, but for everyone else, we're rolling back. We're going back to phase two. We are limiting the, the capacity, all of those things. I guess we're going to be, by the time, in, in the next couple weeks, it really is going to be up to parents to decide what works best for them and their family. Um, I don't see, I don't know how local school districts can't, can do this without any federal intervention, without any investment in resources right now. When you think of 
I talked to some superintendents and some of the larger districts, you're talking two to $3 million just for um, the personal protective equipment on top of their local school budgets already. My concern is that in these Title I districts, if we start taking money that was intended for academic purposes, to clean and sanitize schools, to make sure that we are buying COVID-related equipment or um, hiring for more teachers or substitutes because we have teachers who are medically vulnerable, we're taking away from student learning. And in education, generally, you just, your budgets are done in July for the, follow, for the next school year. If we reopen and the whole plan is to reopen full-time in-person learning and it doesn't work, there is no second pot of money. It's not like school districts can do like restaurants and say, well, we're going to shift to takeout and do things differently. If these major investments are put into reopening 100% in-person and then we have to shift gears as a result of an outbreak or something that happens, there, there is no new money. I mean, so I get it. I get it that there are many people who think that kids need to go back to school. They miss their friends. And that's the most pressing issue that, I mean, I'm happy that we're having a national conversation about the achievement gap. This is something that I've spent my entire career talking about. The fact that kids in different communities have different access to educational opportunities. So maybe now we'll take those things seriously and say, after this, after this moment passes, we will address all of these needs, the infrastructure needs, the academic needs, the achievement gap needs, um, the digital divide, to make sure that all of our kids, no matter what community they live in, are getting the highest quality education they can. Are you worried about uh, what online learning will look like uh, come fall because not enough time and investment has been put towards that, Congresswoman? Uh, we know in Connecticut, one out of four students uh, were not engaged uh, last spring. What's going to happen now? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think people thought that it's very simple for a teacher just to turn the computer around and now start to teach virtually. I remind people that teaching is a profession that takes a tremendous amount of education and skill and practice. And online teaching is a different skill. Uh, we have many people who have been in the classroom and really hadn't engaged in virtual learning or digital learning. And you had some people who use it as a part of their everyday activities. So we really should have taken the last couple months or even now to shore up professional development in those areas, to make sure that our teachers, the ones who are delivering the instruction, understood how to use these platforms and that our kids were connected. And the ones who we could not connect, maybe bring those kids back in person. Um, but these are all of the things that we need to, we need to have in place to do this safely. And then I think the other thing is as part of the HEROES Act, the legislation that we passed, there was there's funding for state and local um, governments. Without that funding, you're going to see layoffs and cuts to the workforce. So if we're saying all of, the th all of these things are happening and the workforce will be cut, I just don't see how we can do any of these things without those robust federal investments. So I've really shifted my focus to try to push my colleagues, you know, on both sides to 
understand how important this is and what it looks like in the classroom and how the challenge that some of these guidelines present in, in various schools and communities. What I've seen is people will talk about, you know, this is a model classroom and this is what we've set up. But many of the facilities that they're discussing are brand new state-of-the-art facilities with open spaces or uh, an ability for kids to spread out. I know the reality on the ground is that everybody is not teaching in that kind of a space. I didn't teach in that kind of a space. On a day, if all of my students were in class, I had two sitting at the front table and one sitting at my desk because you just didn't have the room for the number of students that you had. And that was without a pandemic. So there are just so many things and I cannot in good conscience, you know, put what I know to be true aside um, as part of this conversation. So I, I have to, I, I've, I've reached out to the speaker. I've talked to my colleagues on the Committee of Education and Labor. I've talked to the chairman to really help them understand this has to be a, a hard line in any legislation, in any future legislation that we pass. We, as a body in a bipartisan way, passed $50 billion in aid for the airlines. We passed $670 billion in aid for restaurants. We have not even calculated the total costs of the payroll protection program. There should be no problem making the same types of investments in our children and in education. You're hearing Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. She represents Connecticut's 5th Congressional District here on Where We Live. You can join our conversation if you have a question for her, 888-720-9677. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I just want to mention tonight I'm going to host a special program for Connecticut public as many parents and teachers continue to ask, is school safe? You can watch tonight at CPTV at 8 p.m., simulcast on WNPR. And we know many people don't have power. You can still stream that conversation, that program on your phone at WNPR.org or the Connecticut Public App. We'll be back after a short break. Again, you can ask a question of Congresswoman Hayes at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is 5th District Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. Do you live in her district and have a question for her? Join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Steve is calling in from Waterbury. Steve, what's your question? Yeah. Nope, Steve, go. Uh, you, you may have to start over. We, we can't hear you. It looks like we can't hear Steve. So uh, I just wanted to continue what we were talking about earlier, Congresswoman Hayes, and hopefully we can get him to, uh, to call back. Uh, when we think about uh, this pandemic, I, I wanna, I'm curious how you would rate the president's response to COVID-19. Um, I pay very close attention to what the president says about COVID-19 and the way this pandemic is affecting different communities because I need for the president to be successful on this because it doesn't matter if 
if he does well, that means my community, my country does well. I see so many families losing loved ones. I see hospitals, doctors crying out, reaching out to my office about what they need. I don't think that the president is taking this as seriously as he should be, in my opinion. I, I mean, even as, as early as yesterday, this is going to go away. We're doing a great job. I think that we have done a lot and people have kicked in, but there's so much more that we can do. And that should be our singular focus. Back in March, the, the president was given the authority to use the Defense Production Act, and we still have not fully engaged it. I have people who still reach out looking for a place to be tested or uh, private practices who are looking for personal protective equipment. For schools, FEMA has said that they will not provide PPE for schools. There are so many things that we can still do. Uh, listening to the experts, relying on the science, bringing people together. And I think probably the number one thing is just leading by example. Um, politis this whole idea of should we wear a mask, should we not wear a mask, it's very simple. It's not one of those things where indefinitely we'll be asked to wear a mask and take away our civil, civil liberties. But in the middle of a pandemic, we're asked to wear a mask to make sure that our neighbors are protected and the people who are most vulnerable are protected. I think about for, I worked in a high school. You have students who are 17 turning 18, only a couple months away from going to college. Many of those students are going to be coming from homes where there's still this, this conversation about, is it my right to not wear a mask? I think that was just a really easy one from the very beginning to say, if we're right, then it's wonderful. If it's not, then, oh, well, it was an inconvenience for a couple months, but let's all do this so that we can try to flatten the curve and stop the spread of this virus. And I think that there were so many missed opportunities to do that. And even now, um, just support. We, I'm on calls all the time with economists and different people who, who really talk about the impact that this virus will have if we don't make federal investments now. I think that should be our number one priority. Um, and to see that many of these things are not being prioritized, uh, I think is unfortunate. Now we, the elections are being called into play. That has become a central issue of this pandemic here in Connecticut with mail-in voting. I think that the idea that the president keeps talking about it's not safe or it will produce all of this fraud. If you truly believe that, then let's make the, let's shore up the infrastructure. Let's put the federal investments to protect the security of elections so that everyone can do that safely. But I think there's so many things that should be set aside right now that the leader of this nation should be doing to bring us together in a way that heals. Um, and I, I mean, I can go on and on, you know. I want to take some calls. Again, Congresswoman, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes on where we live today, 888-720-9677. Steve from Waterbury, we're going to try again. What's your question for the Congresswoman? Good morning. My name is Steve Schrag, and I live in Waterbury, and I'm active in the Naugatuck Valley Project. 
We have been active for the last 10 years trying to protect what's good about a nonprofit hospital. We lost our Waterbury Hospital to becoming a for-profit three years ago. A couple of weeks ago, we met with the congresswoman and asked her to sign on to a letter that was signed on to by four other congresspeople, including Rosa DeLora, and asking the investment company that owns Waterbury Hospital to return hundreds of millions of dollars of investment so they could invest that in safety net hospitals like Waterbury so there's adequate staffing, adequate protection from SARS and such. At that, at that meeting, Congresswoman Hayes said she would sign on to the letter. Subsequent to that, she is, has not. Her aides have told us that she will not sign on to the letter. And I want to find out where we are with this. Thank you, Steve, for your question. Congresswoman Hayes. Yes, I do remember that meeting, and we talked at length. And I was asked if I supported the letter to Waterbury Hospital and if I would sign on, and my response was yes. The next day when I reached out, I was told that the letter was already sent. So I couldn't sign on to a letter that had already been sent. So I asked my staff to reach out and to let the group that you were a part of know that. We have remained in contact with the delegation and they're working on recirculating a new letter that I can sign on to to ask for these things. But it was impossible for me, Steve, to, the letter was uh, sent out in May. So we had our call in July. I, I mean, I could have signed it, but it would have been of no value to anyone because it was already sent. Colby's calling in from West Hartford. Colby, what's your question for Representative Hayes? Yeah, my question is uh, with the new bill that is being debated in the, uh, Congress, what is in there for healthcare employees? Because it looks like we have been forgotten. We all have sacrificed, some of us, both husband and wife are in the healthcare. And I believe between uh, March, April, at times I go to work, I take up almost 15 to 20 uh, cases. And you come home and psychologically you feel sick, you know, and we have to juggle this between our special need children, you know. So what is in, what is the incentive that at least that will help others also to join the healthcare, you know, because right now everybody is afraid even to even to be a nurse or even mm-hmm. to be a doctor or something else, you know. So, Congresswoman uh, Hayes, Colby, wanting to know, you know, in this new stimulus bill, what is there to help support healthcare workers? So, in right now, we're negotiating what a new stimulus bill looks like. The two points are: back in May, the House voted for the Heroes Act that passed the House, and just a couple days ago, the Senate released their version of a stimulus pack package, the heal, they, they call it the HEALS Act. And there's a lot of daylight between those two bills. In the HEROES Act, there is an additional $13 an hour, which we're calling premium pay for the people who are frontline workers, healthcare workers, grocery store workers, the people collecting, you know, garbage, you know, all of the people who cannot, who still had to work through this pandemic because their jobs and those services were deemed essential. The HEALS Act doesn't provide any money for frontline workers, and we are really trying to push because we recognize, I mean, the purpose of calling our bill bill the HEROES Act was because we recognize that so many people continue to work through this pandemic and make sure that our communities were safe, uh, that our services were up and running, and we know that 
the strain that it has put on them and their families. I think probably the most important aspect of this legislation that we're working on in regards to healthcare workers is that the HEROES Act provides for $75 billion in testing and tracing. Um, I think the ability of people to be tested, I know the president said we need to do less testing, but I think we need to do more so that we can have a really begin to map out how this virus is moving, where it is going. Um, so there's $75 billion in the HEROES Act legislation compared to about $16 billion in testing and tracing in the HEALS Act. Uh, we think that for all of the conversations that we're having, whether it be about reopening the economy or reopening schools or reopening restaurants, getting back to normal, none of that can happen unless people feel healthy and safe. So we really have to make sure that we are making the necessary investments in healthcare. In the first package in the CARES Act, we really focused on telehealth and telemedicine because we recognize that our nursing homes and elderly facilities were, hardest, were being really hard hit. And we wanted to make sure that our aging population still had access to medical services. So those are all of the types of things that we are trying to do in this next package, really getting the healthcare side under control, but also addressing the needs of workers and making sure that they are protected. One of the things that I've pushed for uh, for schools and my committee has pushed for is an OSHA standard so that local districts and, and communities wouldn't have to try to figure out what is the best way to return people safely. If they had some OSHA protections and we're making sure that those things are all in place and remained in place. I mean, I was a healthcare worker. I was a nurse's aide in a hospital for over 10 years. And I remember like at the beginning of this pandemic, one of the first things I learned as a nurse's aide was universal precautions. You have single use gloves, single use masks, you wash your hands. And I saw all of, all of that shifting to you could wear a mask for many days and you could reuse personal protective equipment. And that's confusing. So we have to make sure that our healthcare facilities have all of the equipment they need, that workers are safe and they don't have to, you know, make these personal decisions about their health and that they can go in and take care of patients. And I really think that the HEROES Act does a really good job of not just providing what people need at work, providing them with the premium pay to recognize their service and their sacrifice for going into work in the middle of a pandemic. I wanted to fit in some more calls for Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. You can join us 888-720-9677. Andrea calling in from Farmington. Andrea, you're on the show. Hello, Congresswoman Hayes. Thank you very much for advocating so strongly for our families during this challenging time. Uh, my question is this. We have five children. Two are still in high school. One has special needs uh, and autism uh, in a private school. Uh, I'm unequivocally not okay with the sports or schools opening again and agree wholeheartedly with all of your points. One of our children currently is under a 504 plan, and when we went to distance learning, the support he was accustomed to stopped entirely and he failed one class and nearly failed the others. Um, as far as the autistic, uh, our daughter's autistic private school is concerned, we keep asking them what their plan is for reopening. And the message that we receive is they're just waiting to hear uh, what the state directs them to do. So 
my question is, what are the school plans to support these kids if they are returning uh, to distance learning, as well as provide support and guidance to schools and programs that support our artistic children? I thank you for that question. And that is something that I have been concerned about from the very beginning, because I recognize for our children with special needs, the slightest change in their routine could really set them back. They, their education is centered on the relationships that they build with the teachers and the people that they trust around them. And I think this is why I have such a big problem with many of these local plans, uh, because they all look so different. I think just at the base, when we address the needs of our students with disabilities, from the federal level, we have to fully fund IDEA. It's something that I've been calling for since I've been in Congress. That's the Individuals with Disability and Education Act, which says that the federal government should be reimbursing districts up to 40% of what they spend for their children with special needs for all of the services that they provide. I think that not enough, little to nothing was done for our students with special needs and that population when schools closed back in March. Because again, no one saw this coming and there really was no plan. So the reopening plan has to put that population right at the heart of anything we do. I think that if there was any group that had to return in person or that we were trying to accommodate for in-person learning, it should be our students who have special needs, who have disabilities, who really are unable to continue this learning at home. I think every child, no matter what their ability or their disability is going to be impacted by the fact that they're being educated in the middle of a global pandemic. I do think that we can close those gaps and catch up, but I, what we can't do, what we can't continue to do is we see all of these cracks revealed and we have a temporary solution and then move on once things get better. I think we have to have long-term concrete substantial plans for all of our students, not just when they return, but moving forward. Um, but I know for many of our students with special needs, they receive many services while they're in school. So if those kids are the ones who have to come back or there's some hybrid model, or we can do some you know, mobile services, things like speech pathology or the other services that kids would otherwise receive in school, we really have to be creative in coming up with solutions to address those needs, but we cannot just have a plan that does not acknowledge that students learn differently and they come to school with different abilities. And generally when we're all in the building, we figure it out. But now, you know, for their health and safety, we have to figure out how to do that in a very different way. Mm. We need to take a break, Congresswoman Hayes. Again, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes represents Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. (music) 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Congresswoman Johanna Hayes is with us uh, this hour, who represents the 5th Congressional District. She's up for re-election uh, in November. She'll be up against, again, a Republican David X. Sullivan in the 5th District. Uh, Congresswoman, we just have a, a few minutes left. You know, I have to ask you, given uh, this year, 2020, the year just uh, keeps uh, with many hits coming at us, but when we think about the time that we're in right now, where many Americans Americans want to see racial justice, count, calling for more police accountability. Uh, you are a black woman in America. You're married to a police officer. You have black sons. Uh, how do you describe this moment our country is in and what you want to see change? Well, I think that this, again, was very personal. It was very painful. I remember the day my husband actually was coming in from work and I've, I've talked about this and he had a uniform on and we saw in the news, they showed the video of George Floyd and I instinctively picked up my phone to call my sons and I looked over and I could see the pain on my husband's face because he's dedicated over 20 years to this profession. But I think that we really are having some honest conversation about, about the way communities are policed. Um, and it's not just the black community who is calling for justice. We are seeing people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, saying that there needs to be some accountability. I think, again, this has evolved into this national conversation where there's a line and there's like this us against them. And it doesn't have to be like that. One of the things, my initial reaction after outside of you know checking on my sons was that the actions of this police officer made my husband less safe. You know, I want my husband to come home at night as well. I want every person who puts on that uniform to serve our communities to make it back home safely to their homes. So the legislation that was passed at the federal level, the Justice and Policing Act, did some things like ban chokeholds. It stopped no-knock warrants. Um, the practice of racial profiling was ended mandates the collection of data and establishes national policing standards. I think the one that people are really, there's the most concern about is ending qualified immunity. And I think that we're at a point in our history where the message is that no person is above the law. We want, uh, we can't deny victims relief in court and we want officers to also have due process. Uh, and there are, for as much as people say it doesn't exist, there are so many mothers, black mothers, families who recognize that it does exist. And it's not every officer. It's not every department. You know, I, I think it's a noble profession, uh, law enforcement. Um, again, I'm personally connected to the profession, but there has to be, it's like, it's just like the same conversation I was just talking about with schools. At the point where we see that we have problems that exist in our society, I think we all have a moral responsibility to say, well, what can we do about it and how can we be better? To continue to pretend it doesn't exist or to refuse to have an honest conversation about how we fix it is not how our communities move forward. So um, I, I just think that I'm up. I'm optimistic because I think on the other side of all this trauma of everything that we're experiencing, we will be better as a country. We will be better as a state because many of the things that kind of were unspoken or we hadn't talked about are coming to the forefront 
And so many people are saying, okay, we acknowledge that these are problems. We acknowledge that these are challenges, but what do we do to make it better? And I'm so excited to be a part of that. So beyond uh, police accountability, uh, shining a light on how systemic racism and policy impact uh, black and brown communities, not only across our nation, but in our state, uh, your district alone, uh, some very wealthy towns and also communities that need resources, uh, Congresswoman. This district, I think when you look at education, we are probably the most racially segregated uh, state when you look at the wealthiest and the poorest school districts. When COVID first hit, There were many people who were trying to explain or trying to appreciate why minorities in black and brown communities were hit the hardest, but the data is there that the disparities in health. I introduced a a resolution to, uh, to show the disparities that racism is a public health crisis. When we look at the number of black women who still die in this country in childbirth, when we look at the number of people in minority communities who have diabetes, and high blood pressure and hypertension. These are all things that made them vulnerable to the virus. It it exists. And the fact that we can't say that and have that conversation without it erupting into racial tension shows that we still have work to do, especially when we have the data that supports all of these things. Our next question should be then, how do we address it or how do we fix it? Not why does this have to, why do you have to bring up race? And we'll have to leave it there. Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, thank you for joining Where We Live today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thank you so much for having me. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. We'll be back tomorrow.